In the foreword to one of his books, Frank B. Gilbreth Jr. wrote that he would have finished it several years earlier if only he had not got all bogged down in the research. The fascinating old logs of the whaling captains kept me away from my typewriter, even after I had all the material I needed. My experience has been similar, and the proof is that I sought out Gilbreth's book. When I came to look at it, it had little to do with my theme, but I could not ignore the title of Whales and Women. Yet no matter how far and carefully I have searched through time and distance, I know that some details of women in the far south will be missing from this volume. The obvious reason is that I have been unable to dig deeply enough for the names and the events. Another is that the names simply were never recorded. It has taken an inordinately long time to collect, check and arrange the information the book contains, and a number of times I've had to stop and question my point of view. I've often had to wrestle with the problem of trying to disassociate my love for all things Antarctic from the equally important presentation of the straight historical facts. The names and events recorded in this book are, for the most part, confined to those available in English language accounts and may therefore seem to be biased in this regard. This is, however, simple expediency, since the author is not fluent in any language but English, if that, and the material most readily available is in that language. The book is one result of an abiding, obsessive passion for Antarctica that began 30-odd years ago when I went to work at 19 as a typist at the Antarctic Division, then Department of External Affairs, in Collins Street, Melbourne. The typing pool was then just myself and one senior woman. At that time, the only thing I knew about Antarctica was how to spell the word, and I had heard the names of Scott, Mawson and Philip Law. It was 1954, and the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions had just established the first station, Mawson, on the Antarctic continent, and the first party of winterers was settling in. It was a man's world, even in the office, and no one ever suggested it might be any other way, least of all myself. Like many women of my age, for much of my young life, I had often railed against the double standards encountered in daily life. But we accepted, or at least deferred to, the facts of life as they existed. The full meaning of the slogan, A Woman's Place is Everywhere, came to the forefront of our consciousnesses later. Then we questioned and crashed through barriers drawn by all sorts of organisations and institutions and by our own inhibitions. Today, women need recognise no barriers. I accepted totally that I was in a man's world in those days, however, and made no waves. I didn't even bother to ask what it was like down there. I learned as much as I could by taking in the material I was given to type. It opened up aspects of an environment never dreamed of before. In-depth conversations did not take place between lowly typists and intrepid Antarctic explorers. This was not sexism, nor class distinction, nor elitism, I have since decided. Well, not entirely, anyway. I know myself now 
how difficult it is to describe one's feelings about the Antarctic to another person. You try to explain, oh, it's just so incredibly beautiful. The absolute conviction and wild excitement in the voice is not enough. Uninterest or mild disbelief stares back at you from the face of the inquirer. You try a different tack. It's so incredibly quiet. Then you remember the roar of the wind in the ship's rigging, the mind-numbing sound of a blizzard screaming across the flattened sea, or the thunder of tons of ice breaking off an iceberg and crashing into the ocean. And so you add, sometimes, anyway, rather lamely. Again, it's so pure, so unspoiled. And you see in your mind the droppings of half a million penguins staining the summer rock and running yellow and brown in rivulets through the once white snow. And you add mumbling, by man, that is, ignoring your distaste for the rubbish dumps and the broken down equipment and the vandalised abandoned buildings strewn about the coastlines. I become tongue-tied then, and the responses from my questioner all signal incomprehension or a polite, really? What is there to say? The Antarctic is like no other place on earth. Being there is not like any other experience you can use to help the inquirer understand. You know that other Antarcticans will understand without explanation, so you seek out their company. Over a few beers together, the tongue is loosened, the words flow more easily, and one feels the response. But even here, there is a fine line to be taken into account before you launch into a monologue on the Antarctic. You must not be too flowery, nor too sentimental, nor too joyous, nor too anything. Each person seems a little afraid that you will spoil his or her own encounter with magnificence by being too banal. And so one is left most often with remembrances of old so-and-so to give voice to, or discussions on the pros and cons of the different exploring expeditions and their leaders. But you know that there is a basic understanding. Another Antarctican understands that cruelty and beauty, that terror and tranquility can be experienced side by side in the one moment. Before I ever travelled south, I fell in love with the Danish ships that carried the supplies and the expeditioners far off to the unknown land below the southern horizon. The tiny vessels with their red-painted hulls, decks, derricks and funnels stood apart from the others at North Wharf in Melbourne. I'd go down to the docks at the weekends just to look at them. The division was a wonderful and exciting place in which to work. For many years, each one of us felt that everything we did, from the simple act of switching on the urn for morning coffee, through ordering stores which ranged from blood serum to helicopters and coordinating their delivery so that each arrived at the wharf in the proper sequence for loading, right on to formulating a theory to account for solar winds, was contributing to the success of Einar. Each one of us was totally involved in the expeditions. 
For a time, it was part of my job to deliver the blood serum from the blood bank to the expedition ships. This was done on sailing day when the loading was in its final hectic stage. I enjoyed chayacking with the wharfies as I went on board with my supplies, and if my timing was right, I was offered a drink and invited to sit and chat for a while during smoko in the leader's cabin. Sometimes I remained there for a while on my own, and I watched the coming and going and the questions and answers of the wharfies, the ship's agents, the expeditioners, the ship's officers and crew, and the deliverers of last-minute stores. It was all magic. My first journeys south were to the sub-Antarctic, to misty, mystical Macquarie Island. The visits were short, made during the summer resupply voyages to the station. Yet that wind-racked, rain-sodden isle haunts me with its wild beauty and has become something of a spiritual home to me. I hanker after it as some long for a place in the sun. Crouched down in the middle of a penguin colony of perhaps a 100,000 birds is a fascinating experience. It's like landing on some distant, inhabited planet and trying to make contact with the natives. Hours of watching, as a would-be writer rather than as a scientist, reveal every facet of character and gesture. What is not evident is provided by the imagination. Individuals stand out in the crowd, catching attention by eccentricities in behaviour. I went into the same state of mind as when watching the passing parade from a King's Cross coffee shop or a beer stall in Bugis Street. The only difference here was, no matter how long I sat there amongst the royal penguins, no one I knew from my hometown would ever pass by. There is a story told of Macquarie Island, I've not been able to confirm the details, that a woman and two men were the only survivors of a shipwreck during the 1860s. They were there for two years and the woman died, murdered, in mysterious circumstances just before the rescuers arrived. The story and musings of the fate of the woman and the reasons for her being done away with makes good listening, especially when sheltering, shivering from the cold and damp in Eagle's Cave where the maroon trio are said to have set up camp. Over many summers, the story was embellished and polished by Einar expeditioners and recounted to visiting females as a, mostly, humorous warning, an example of what could befall them if they remained too long on the island. However, several women have now wintered at Macquarie, and all have returned safely. The most harrowing experience for a new chum is getting from ship to shore in rough weather. Because there is no wharf, this is accomplished by travelling several hundred metres from the ship by army larks, amphibious vehicles, that toss and pitch against the ship's rolling hull. When you consider that most of us were usually sedentary scientists or office workers, unused to anything more intrepid than getting to work and back through city traffic, then it is not surprising that fear showed on several faces as each stepped forward to go over the side. It is not simply the fear of death or injury, although these are possibilities, but the fear of being found wanting or failing in the eyes of our colleagues. 
The faces of the new expeditioners and supernumeraries are pale and distracted as they queue up ready to climb onto the Jacob's Ladder down into the heaving lark. Each must face the moment of truth. There is no other way. Climbing backwards down the ladder to a point just above where the lark rose, bobbing on the crest of the highest wave, we each waited until the appropriate moment signalled by one of the larkies, then let go the rope of the ladder and jumped backwards, hoping to land on the deck of the gyrating lark at some stage, not too deep in the well of the waves. As we landed, many hands were waiting to grab us and haul us to safety, making way for the next quaking person. This athletic feat was somewhat hampered by the wearing of bulky but necessary life jackets and far too many layers of clothing protecting us against the chill wind and sea spray. Despite the confusion of mind of the new chums, the exercise was completed without danger to life or loss of limbs, accomplished through the patient efficiency of the two-man lark crews who shouted orders without fear or favour and who manoeuvred their craft with high skill. Apart from this, I found that the most hazardous part of travelling to the far south aboard ship, unless one is prone to seasickness, is trying to shower during rough weather. It is a bruising experience, and one can suffer further damage by being thrown behind first against hot water pipes. Towards the end of January 1976, I was aboard the Thala Dan, bound for Casey on the Antarctic continent. To set foot in Antarctica was like possessing the moon for me. Not the moon of the astronauts, even though there are similarities in the starkness of the landscape, the absence of vegetation and the feeling of isolation. But the moon is seen from Earth by romantics. Diana the Huntress, chaste and fair. As with the Huntress, there is here the streak of cruelty, the sacrifices demanded by the goddess, evident in the uncompromising environment. One becomes a part of the endurance of Mawson and the disappointment of Scott. One becomes a part of the endurance of Mawson and the disappointment of Scott, for now one can really understand their feelings. It is a strange and wondrous thing how just being there can do all that. We spent a day in the ship's boat visiting some of the islands off the coast of Wilkes Land. The sea darkened, seemed deeper and colder, turned menacing by approaching bad weather. Yet there was only a small swell and the water appeared glossy as though the ocean had been slicked over with calming oil. I ignored my feet and hands aching from the cold and streaming eyes and nose and dreamed of Shackleton and his men in the James Caird. The following two days were spent aboard the Thala, riding out a full-blown blizzard at sea. I never for a moment felt fear. It was pure exhilaration, even though I was well aware of the dangers. The ship had lost another anchor, and she was constantly at an angle to the wind. The fabric of the flags at the masthead was stripped to shreds and macrameed by the blizzard into a fantastic work of art wrought by the elements. Later, the sea was like glass, reflecting the shoreline in minute detail, so that it was impossible to tell which way was up. 
I have not wintered in Antarctica and cannot, therefore, claim to know anywhere near all there is to know of the ways of this awesome land of ice. The true Antarctican is one who has experienced every mood that a year on the ice can reveal. The summer visitor knows only the half of it. We three were the first Australian women ever to go ashore at Casey. Although I was prepared for it, I felt no obvious discrimination. And if anyone disapproved of women coming to their beloved station, then they were all well-mannered enough to keep it from us. Several of the men took the opportunity to brush up on their social graces by chatting away in a manner I realised had been quite foreign to them for twelve months, judging by the ragging they took from some of their colleagues. Many of the four-letter words usually avoided in polite company were stifled, half out of their mouths, for our benefit. One or two of the men at first seemed deliberately to use them in a defiant manner, as though daring the intruders to show some shock or disapproval. This was soon seen to be a senseless exercise, and everyone reverted to their normal speech patterns. The same words were still used, but were no longer offensive, simply because they were used naturally. We thought we were to be the first women at Casey, but when we arrived, I soon spied amongst the photographs on the wall of Club Casey, the recreation room, one of Inge Knudsen, the Thala's radio officer. She'd been ashore years before us, and she was with us again this trip. She'd been making the Antarctic run since the summer of 1967-68. Her presence, however, had never been taken into account officially. Many of the firsts in the far south are suspect and coloured by prevailing attitudes. The tendency for some sections of the media, for example, almost to demand a first before reporting anything about Antarctica, has often resulted in a far stretch in claiming some of these. One wonders how far it can be taken. Will we someday see news of the first Martian at the South Pole? I have been cautioned that it is too early to write about women in Antarctica, as it is all so new. There has been little time even for the women themselves to put things into perspective. However, I believe that now is a good time for this book to be written. The names of some of the modern women pioneers are a matter of record, but already there are signs that the women who are going south are no longer considered separately from their male colleagues, and this is as it should be. Soon, perhaps, the names of the early travellers and expeditioners will be lost as more and more women become part of everyday life in Antarctica. This ought not to be allowed to happen. Although the female pioneers are so far in time behind their male counterparts, and along with present-day male expeditioners, have not needed to be so intrepid as the original explorers because of modern equipment and techniques, their contributions to current knowledge are nonetheless significant. It will soon be taken as a matter of course that women shall work alongside men in Antarctica as they do elsewhere on our earth and in space. Women have proved they can do the job in Antarctica as anywhere. Episode 103 Women and Antarctica that was the introduction to Elizabeth Chipman's 1986 book, Women on the Ice, read by Jackie Karen, and included here with the author's permission. 
Elizabeth Chipman worked for the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions and spent time at Australia's research stations at Macquarie Island and on the Antarctic continent. Her book constitutes the most comprehensive recounting of women in the Southern Ocean, on the subantarctic islands and in Antarctica itself that I've come across, up until the 1990s, and makes compelling reading. But that such a book exists leads me to take the piss out of the automatic question the men's rights advocates invariably posit when women get some attention. Why isn't there an equivalent book about men? The answer to the whiny question I put into their whiny mouths is that every book about Antarctica up until 1956 was exclusively about men. So, a question for you, dear listener. What's better than mansplaining? Almost everything is the answer you're likely trying to yell at your earphones right now. Stop it. You'll make the other commuters nervous, even if you're correct in your answer and righteous in the tone you're taking with your ears. Unfortunately, I'm the only host of the series, and I'm a man, and my pronouns are he and him. So it's mansplaining from start to finish, as I embark on an examination of why so few women featured in the series to date. It would be a pretty short episode if I left the explanation at because so few women went there until recently. So these episodes will examine why so few women went to Antarctica until recently. At the start of the 20th century, when Marie Stopes asked if she could join Lieutenant Robert Falcon Scott's expedition to Antarctica, the request never registered as warranting more thought than Scott gave it in the time the two spent dancing together. Marie Stopes' research career struck the Victorian mindset as unnatural, and her request barely registered as an actual question warranting a response. Of course she couldn't go to Antarctica. She was a woman. That she was a leading scientist in her fields of interest, carving out first a doctorate in paleobotany and then an academic position at the University of Manchester, overcoming resentful roadblocks placed in her path by the prevailing masculine orthodoxy, didn't factor into the situation, and Scott headed south with a medical doctor heading up his scientific program and a Royal Navy lieutenant where the meteorologist should be. The automatic prejudice against taking women south wasn't quick to change. Antarctic expeditions and bases were sexist, because the societies that launched those expeditions and staffed those bases were also sexist. Fifty years later, persistent ice coffee whipping boy, Richard Evelyn Bird, held to form with the extremely stupid statement, No woman has ever stepped on little America, and we have found it to be the most silent and peaceful place in the world. Perhaps not setting the tone, but certainly encapsulating the attitude men took south with them in the 20th century. He repeated his attempt at a denigrating bon mot in this vein in 1955, shortly before his final foray south, stating, Little America is the most peaceful spot in the world due to the absence of women. Putting the boot into an entire demographic of humanity, conveniently ignoring the drunken noisiness of two iterations of the base he barely maintained control over, and once again ensuring he used Little America as representing all of Antarctica, because he was Richard Evelyn Bird, and you shouldn't for a moment be allowed to forget it was he who owned the continent and was its mayor. Overall, these constituted the dumbest things I'll quote, until we get to Bird's Antarctic successor, Rear Admiral George Dufek. As I hope I've made clear throughout the series, I don't care if you set foot on an island or a rock awash at mean low water spring, or never actually got your foot off your vessel. 
If you head south far enough to see snow, seals and penguins, and to feel really cold, you've been to Antarctica, whether or not you touched the largest chunk of it presently sitting above chart datum. On the 23rd of February 1935, Danish-born Carolyn Mikkelsen, sailing aboard the Torshaven in company with Captain Clarius Mikkelsen, stepped ashore somewhere near or on the Antarctic continent. Records aren't particularly clear on the matter of where Carolyn Mickelson set her foot, but the date, the snow, the penguins and the seals are uncontested aspects of the experience. The shore party built a can and raised a flag, and this may have taken place in the Vestfold Hills, but no one associated with the events made any noise about this being the first female footfall on the Antarctic continent at the time. The most recent articles published on the matter cite evidence that she may have visited Trine Island, two miles off the mainland, which given the 10,000 other nautical miles lying between there and her home, only matters if you take claiming ceremonies so seriously that the magic flappy fabric and incantations can only extend as far as mean high water on spring tide. Silly Norwegians, flags hold no power over that two nautical miles of seawater because of the... The saltiness, the saltiness of the water interferes with the, the emanation of the nationness particles that the flag releases with each flapping oscillation. Ha! We know the date, and it's the earliest confirmed woman's footfall in Antarctica I can account. Jean-Baptiste Charcot recounts providing medical attention to Madame Betsy Rasmussen Andersen, the Chilean wife of Norwegian whaling captain aboard his vessel, owned by the Sociedad Belena de Magallanes at Deception Island in 1906, so she would at least have seen the Antarctic continent. Charco speculates that the Andersons may have wintered at Deception Island, as he encountered them again during the return north in 1907, but if that's the case, that stands as my first inkling that the whaling ships didn't head north each austral winter, so I'll have to follow up on that. There's also a likelihood that a shipwrecked woman rescued from the Campbell Islands saw Antarctica from the deck of the Sabrina, sailing in company with the Eliza Jane on a sealing voyage commanded by Balleny in 1839. But the Sabrina sank and took the woman, her name, and the ship's logbooks with it. We can also speculate that women may have sighted or stepped on Antarctica well before Carolyn Mickelson's footfalls, dressed as sailors. History offers up enough documented incidents of women going to sea dressed as sailors, or going to war dressed as soldiers, for it to stand as a certainty that more than just those who got found out tried the gambit of wearing the stuff and doing the things. Adding to the uncertainty over which woman first went to Antarctica are Harold Fletcher's experiences during the Banzari in the late 1920s, when he saw women workers aboard Norwegian factory ships working the waters around Antarctica but didn't provide details beyond noting their presence. I figure the likelihood of one of these whaling women took up a proffered opportunity to get off the ship and set foot on a rock as moderate to high. What we don't have is documentation and details, and that's why Carolyn Mickelson's moment is important in this narrative. On the 29th of January, 1937, Ingrid Christensen, her daughter Sophie, and her travelling companion, Lillemore Rashlu, became the first women we can definitely state set foot on the continent, stepping ashore from a tender launched from a chaser working in company with the Torshaven. 
anyone still contesting whether or not a woman visited Antarctica based on the continentality of the site or the documentary evidence of the event had to shut their fat mouth at that point. No saltwater body interrupted the flow of feminulum particles over the entire continent from that point onward. If you've listened to this series from the first episode onward, you'll likely recognise that I don't much care who went where and did what first. I'll recount the facts of precedence without particularly celebrating them, but in the case of women in Antarctica, the metaphorical decks of cards, as opposed to the literal decks of ships, were stacked so much against them that every first firsted warrants mention and celebration. If getting to Antarctica is sufficiently extraordinary for men to frot themselves to self-confidence over it, then women getting there in a male-dominated context is doubly or trebly or some even higher factorially impressive. And in a lot of cases, the need to preserve the illusion of a realm that was not only the philosophical, but also the physical preserve of manly men, saw the presence of women actively hidden to better maintain the illusion of Antarctica's unique selective pressure against vulvas. Repeatedly, the accounts of women going south, purportedly to be the first women to do X, or to stay at Y, or to winter at Z, found their celebrated presence gazumped by evidence of unofficial female presences. A photograph of a Danish ship's radio officer and uterus haver snapped enjoying time in the clubroom on whose wall the photograph unofficially hangs. A diary recounting a woman's experiences at the same site the newcomer's vagina allegedly blessed with its government-sanctioned and loudly trumpeted presence for the first time. Women should have been accepted into Antarctica long before government-sanctioned easing of mandatory penis ownership regulations gave the easing governments bragging rights about how progressive they were being by letting non-penis-equipped representatives represent them in the South. The conditions that indicate against human occupation in the far South lie so far outside what a monkey might endure without large quantities of life support equipment, transport machinery and consumables, they make any statistically significant difference between the average strength of women and men moot. Antarctica doesn't care what's in your pants or how you identify And while I'd argue that's a lead we should all follow at all latitudes, it's particularly galling to read allegedly confident men bleating about the need to keep Antarctica free of the distracting, weak, scandalous, or whatever other bloviatedly false division men have employed to make women unwelcome on the ice and to prevent women from polluting the manly man's testing ground. When women did get the opportunities to head south, their colleagues looked at the appointments as a litmus test on which they saw the future of women in Antarctica hanging, instead of just another appointment of a person to do a job. Success could lead to grudging acknowledgement, but failure would incite a chorus of I told you so, and additional barriers to entry for any subsequent women. Men didn't face the same dyotic assessment. If a man failed at something, he might not get another opportunity in Antarctica, but it went without saying, that his successor would be male. Bureaucratic inertia and active attempts to articulate barriers to entry more meaningful than no girls in the clubhouse were eventually caught up by social change and associated legislation that forced government programs to stop excluding women. The first women to take up the opportunities these changes offered had to compete for acceptance by and respect from cohorts of men already experienced in Antarctic operations and in the face of resentment of those who tried and failed to keep women off what they thought of as their patch. And women have trouble staking ground in science careers in the first place. 
one of the myths white cis heterosexual male scientists regularly tell themselves is that science, because it relies on evidence and the testing of falsifiable hypotheses, is immune to the social pressures and mores that make sexism or analogous bigotry problematic. Then, someone tests the hypothesis and falsifies it, and the white cis heterosexual male scientists change their opinions based on the available evidence and work to eliminate the prejudices inherent to the scientific teaching and research edifice... Oh, hang on. No. Wait. The other thing. They mostly ignore the evidence and continue to claim that sexism isn't a problem in the sciences. And it isn't. For them. For women, on the other hand, it's a right bastard. Women are underrepresented in the upper echelons of Australian and New Zealand scientific bodies for a number of possible reasons explored by Professor Kate White in research she carried out into gender representation in postgraduate studies. Her data showed a statistically significant difference favouring women in PhD programs, but also found that that bias reversed in favour of men in postdoctoral programs, where the good money and the tenure track lies. The hypotheses put forward by Professor White's report suggested a number of institutional and cultural mechanisms that might explain the disparities, but never discussed the one I thought most obvious and which I'd seen in action in academic, government and consulting research bodies. That being, the creepy, sexist old researchers like having lots of young and enthusiastic women around them, but those women eventually leave their careers in science because they get treated so badly in research institutes. I endorse all of the institutional changes Professor White proposed, but unless people start getting sacked by their academic institutes for breaking the existing rules about not fucking the students and not sexually harassing their colleagues, the problematic data skew may continue. Assuming Australia and New Zealand provide a sound general model for the scientific programs in other nations, women have to work harder for longer than men to reach any given level of collegiate credibility. Therefore, those women who have carved out a space for themselves in Antarctic research are doubly impressive for overcoming the sexism hurdles inherent to scientific institutes, as well as those inherent to Antarctic research programs, with the possible exception of the Russian ones. Russia stands apart in my eyes, and I think I've nutted out an explanation as to why Russian women numbered among the first to travel to and work in Antarctica. Feel free to get in touch and recommend some literature that will set me right if I've gotten this wrong, but here's Matt's working hypothesis on the matter. Russian society arose from different cultural origins and underwent different shaping forces to my own. The Reformation, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment didn't push the same changes in Russia as they did in Europe and the colonies European nations established. When people started exploring in and setting up their national presences on Antarctica, the average Russian citizen was closer to a peasant in a feudal hierarchy than their European equivalent. Sexism still existed in that framework, but a pair of hands that could do work was set to work regardless of who those hands were attached to. Russian women worked on the farms and in the factories in times of peace, and went to war in times of war, because they weren't placed on a cultural pedestal by Russian society to the same extent as happened in the West. Russian women joined Arctic expeditions in the 1930s, and some of the earliest records of working women in Antarctica arise on Russian crewed ships, marine geologist Marie Klenova sailing aboard the research vessel OB 
in the lead-up to the IGY in the Austral summer of 1955-56, working off the coast of Queen Maryland. Women scientists joined Russian summer base programs from the IGY onward. Other nations, their media in particular, used the presence of women at Russian stations as an excuse to denigrate Russian scientific programs as not properly heroic and hard case, because the 20th century was made of hot garbage. In the 1970s, Argentine women began arriving at bases around the Antarctic Peninsula because of their uteruses, where other nation stations kept women out because of theirs. The Argentine military junta endorsed a program to send families to Antarctic bases as a form of colonisation, and several Antarctic citizens were born there as a result. The first birth on the Antarctic continent, keeping in mind a Russian citizen was born aboard a Russian whaling vessel in 1948, and births on sub-Antarctic islands date back to the early 20th century at South Georgia and the mid-19th century at the Kerguelens, took place at Argentina's Esperanza Station in Hope Bay in 1978. With their own Antarctic antenatal placements in 1983 and 1984 at Frey Station on King George Island. Between them, the Antarctic adjacent nations programs witnessed 11 births, the last being in 1984, at which point the expense and the lack of international recognition given the Argentine and Chilean schemes led to their being ditched. A number of prominent Antarctic leaders, advocates and veterans posited that women on base might provide a civilising influence on the social dynamics of Antarctic society. Acting as a civilization yardstick's a pretty demeaning role to stick on anyone's head, let alone as a sole reason for existing in a particular space. But that's as much recognition of worth women received in the thinking of some polar pioneers. Several women making early strides overcoming reluctance to let them onto their nation's research stations, out to field camps and into the winter teams, report that the veteran men they worked with stated they thought the presence of those women had made the base experience more congenial and civilised, which is a nice emergent property, but not a reason to have women on base when the far better reasons remained that they were competent at their jobs. Jenny Darlington, whom you'll hear a lot more of shortly, found herself in a confidant role she never asked to fill during a fraught expedition. Not something I'd wish on anyone. Mutual support's great, but one person carrying the woes of an entire team is enough to make Atlas shiver, and women shouldn't be expected to take up the mantle of mother or sister or confessor or agony aunt just because of Victorian assumptions about nurturing and compassion. There are six books on my shelf of Antarctic history resources recounting individual women's experiences in Antarctica between the Second World War and the turn of the 21st century, and it's not for want of trying to find more that that's all I've got. The opportunities that nations and expeditions afforded men have only recently become available to women, and the isolated nature of Antarctic stations makes the cultural microcosm they represent slow to respond to social changes occurring at home. Sexism survives in Antarctica more readily than at home because microcosms follow social change. They don't lead it. And because the history of self-selected manly man cohorts actively resisted change when it started encroaching on what they perceived as their last bastion of rugged manly man space. The six books are My Antarctic Honeymoon by Jenny Darlington, recounting her experiences in 1946 and 1947 at Stonington Island, 
Antarctic Housewife by Nan Brown, recounting her experiences at South Georgia in the mid-1950s. The Abominable Snow Women by Dorothy Braxton, recounting her time in the Ross Sea aboard one of the first tourist voyages in that region in 1969. The Ice Beneath My Feet by Diana Patterson, who was base leader at Australia's Mawson Station in 1989. Terra Incognita by Sarah Wheeler, who went south on an Artists and Writers Grant with the United States Antarctic Research Programs and the British Antarctic Survey in the mid-1990s. And Icebound by Jerry Nielsen, who was base doctor at Pole through the 1999 winter. Any book carries in its prose the context of the culture its author operated in, and these six are no exception to that, but being the only examples available to me recounting women's experiences of Antarctica across a 55-year cross-section, they have to do a lot of heavy lifting representing an entire gender, where equivalent male perspectives are almost problematically common for the same time span, forcing me to get choosy about how I spend my reading time in preparing my episode notes. Where I can draw on accounts from the doctor, the journalist, the project manager and a general hand from any decade of almost any large Antarctic program in the second half of the 20th century. Those six accounts on my shelf carry the single perspectives of those disparate occupations scattered across half a century, during which feminism ended some of the blockages that previously made opportunities unavailable to women, and similarly broadened the scope with which women could think and write about themselves and their experiences. The earliest of the six books is the one for which no male counterpart experience is available, because there were no male socialites taken south in the Antarctic history I'm alert to. Jenny Darlington went south with the Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition and wintered at East Base on Stonington Island in 1947. Her status as one of two first women to winter in Antarctica came about largely because of the difficulty Finn Ronnie experienced in getting the expedition funded. Finding volunteers to fill the expedition roles wasn't difficult in the wake of the war, but getting financial support to purchase equipment and fuel without the bird branding was. People mostly listened to Finn Ronnie make his pitch, asked if Richard Bird was involved, lost interest and didn't contribute. Jackie Ronnie did a hell of a lot of administrative work in the expedition preparations, and likely the project would never have gotten moving without her sustained support. So she sailed with the ship, port of Beaumont, when it departed Texas, and Jenny Darlington took a berth with her pilot husband, Expedition 3IC, Harry, on the idea that she and Jackie would depart north from Panama as the ship carried on south. There was still more work for Jackie to take care of when the ship reached Panama, so she stayed on for the transit to Valparaiso, so Jenny did too. While the Darlingtons took a break in Santiago, Finn Ronnie arranged for Jackie to remain with the expedition through the winter, where she would transmit copy to the North American Newspaper Alliance to fulfil a sponsorship deal, freeing Finn up to head out on the trail parties. When the Darlingtons arrived back at the ship, they were presented with a document signed by seven of the twenty men, stating that if Jackie Ronnie went south, they would not. Having not reached a majority, the disgruntled contingent sought a compromise only the Darlingtons could provide. The undersigned would remain with the expedition if Jenny went too. The reasoning being, two women on the expedition might short-circuit the dire consequences they prophesied if only Jackie went. I don't know what they thought was likely to happen, 
and therefore can't speculate on why a second woman's presence might null that concern. But that's the dilemma they presented to the Darlingtons. And being a thoroughly 1940s woman, Jenny Darlington left it to her husband to make that decision for her. In spite of regularly deriding her practical skills and overall intelligence, this is, after all, the man who stole her passport to prevent her departing for a planned trip to Europe in order to force her hand regarding his engagement proposal. Harry Darlington agreed to let his wife accompany the expedition. She recounts a degree of apprehension about both the privations that lay ahead and of the social isolation her presence might generate, both for her and for her husband, her presence being an even greater privilege than that of his dog, Chinook. Rescued from the explosive fate of his mother in 1941 on the East Base dog lines and returning to Stonington Island as a pet. Her experience of that isolation was limited though, as the clothing and work on base made gender a moot point. She found herself accepted and useful, and the worst isolation she experienced arose from the camp cliques that formed about the different factions within the leadership. She was taken south as a companion for Jackie Ronnie, and a positive circuit breaker for the problems some of the crew saw in taking Jackie south as a sole woman, but the two women spent little time together as the expedition, already fractious and factional on the voyage south, divided down strictly pro and anti-Finn Ronnie lines, with Harry Darlington prominent among the anti-cadre. The women didn't have any particular quarrel, but avoided each other in case fraternising led to rumours of disloyalty to their respective partners. Both women noted their general acceptance by their male colleagues in their written output. One of Jackie Ronnie's missives, sent north by radio reading, in part, The simple requirements of living are so time-consuming and so shared that there's little time here for distinctions arising from sex. Life here is on a completely different standard than life in a temperate climate. The normal basis for judgments do not apply, and a woman is not so much a woman here as another person, regardless of sex, who shares a common fight against the elements. The one occasion Jenny Darlington recorded in which her femaleness caused anything approaching an untoward reaction was when a Bast team member, on returning from Hope Bay and engaged in tethering his team on the dog lines, absently asked her to hold a snow shovel. When she spoke her willingness to accept the implement, he looked up in shock and abandoned his task, heading straight to the bass hut. He returned with a companion already accustomed to the presence of the American women on Stonington Island, apologetic for his rudeness and stating that he thought he'd experienced a vivid, trail-induced hallucination on meeting a woman when he wasn't expecting to encounter one until he got home from his ice time. After their winter on the ice, Jenny Darlington concluded that it was no place for women, though stated she wouldn't hesitate to repeat the experience if the opportunity arose. Jackie Ronnie wrote in one of her articles that, I wouldn't have missed it for a million dollars and I wouldn't go back for two million. Similarly concluding that women had no business going to Antarctica. At the time, Jenny Darlington and Jackie Ronnie constituted about 0.6% of all the people who'd wintered in Antarctica, but that representation fell away by orders of magnitude in the next two decades as national programs ramped up in Antarctica, but women were largely excluded. Nan Brown went to South Georgia 
as the wife of the government radio officer charged with demonstrating Commonwealth administration over the local geography at Point Edwards, near the whaling station at Griffithkin, most often referred to as Pesca in the text, noting the abbreviated name of the company operating the whaling station cited there, rather than the name Carl Anton Larison first gave the Bay of Potts, which we use today. Nan Brown's is a story of overcoming household challenges in a cold climate with limited opportunity to replenish stores. Her Antarctic domesticity carries all the same challenges as base life, so there was a lot to write about the day-to-day interactions and activities, but as the vignettes of whaling station life and Nan Brown's rare English language account of a week spent on a Norwegian crewed whale chaser that give the book its greatest interest for me. It's got penguins and seals and washing and cooking and isolation and three other women on the island and lots of Norwegian whaling characters and goodwill and jolly reminiscences and stands as a good window into South Georgia when it was still a busy hub of Southern Ocean extraction industries. Dorothy Braxton pushed back against a lot of prejudice from co-workers and her community to carve out a career in New Zealand journalism and spent over a decade campaigning to travel to McMurdo Sound to document the US and New Zealand programs operating on Ross Island after the International Geophysical Year. At every step, she received firm rebuffs from the US Navy and the branch of the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research that eventually became the New Zealand Antarctic Research Program, and later rebranded to Antarctica New Zealand. Labelled the Petticoat Ban, the US Navy response to women wanting to go south is encapsulated in Rear Admiral George Dufek's statement that Women will not be allowed in the Antarctic until we can provide one woman for every man. Disdainfully describing the women eager to go south as The do-gooders and the newspaper girls. And later adding that I felt the men themselves didn't want women there. It was a pioneering job. I think the presence of women would wreck the illusion of the frontiersmen the illusion of being a hero. He said all of that with his outside voice. And while it, and while it, and while it's every bit as bigoted, and while it's every bit as bigoted as it seems on the first pass, it's far more honest an assessment of the situation than anyone else gave for many years. Mealy mouth excuses about a lack of facilities became the catch cry of anyone who wanted to block women from accessing the ice. I know a number of people alive today who continue to espouse that women shouldn't be in Antarctica because it hurt their manly pride to share the space with people they automatically considered physically and mentally weaker than themselves. But if you suggest there's anything these same men couldn't hack, they will fire up and rant about the number of winters they withstood with absolute equanimity. To suggest that these Antarcticans couldn't cope with the strain of partitioning existing facilities, whether physically or behaviourally, or of constructing new facilities with the limited tools and materials to hand, is to detract from the alleged heroic frontierism of those very manly men. So the lack of facilities excuse never seemed to sit well, even with the people giving it voice to cover up the real reasons behind the government-level reluctance to send women south. The real reason was, as George Defect noted in his mouth-spoutings, sex. People worried that women going south might lead to jealousies not present in all male bases, and that that additional tension might test already fraught social circumstances among winterers, who do, on occasion, get toasty enough to commit murder over circumstances that wouldn't register in a larger community, to breaking point.
No career bureaucrat was willing to go into bat for change because they didn't want to be the one to blame if anything untoward happened. So the slim chance that a sexual relationship on an Antarctic base might lead to the closing scene of John Carpenter's The Thing kept those bureaucrats mouthing platitudes about the lack of facilities. That's some long bows stretched out over an assumption that no one in Antarctica was having sex up to that point. But I guess with homosexuality illegal in a lot of the nations setting out their Antarctic shingle, people were keeping that sex on the lowdown. Homosexuality was still legally deemed a criminal act in Tasmania up until 1997, and the Russian government is actively stoking anti-LGBT sentiment at the present. So there's that. Some bureaucrats tried on arguments about pregnancies and feminine health to keep women out of national Antarctic programs with a similar level of sincere conviction as they applied to the facilities gambit, as though anyone competent to head south wasn't similarly competent to use contraception or consult a doctor. Sir Vivian Fuchs, due for ice coffee attention when I get to covering the IGY and the first transcontinental crossing of the Antarctic surface, wrote that the sexual tension that would arrive in Antarctica with women would necessarily destabilise otherwise united teams of men, and that the only way to avoid such a tragedy of failed male bonding was to ensure any women arriving on the ice occupy women-only bases. This idea, arising from a bigoted assumption that women are axiomatically problematic, actually got tested at Neumeyer Station in 1990, when Germany sent south a winter contingent comprising only women. German regulations at the time precluded a mixed-gender staff, but the government still wanted to demonstrate some degree of progress by getting women on site. The 1990 German winterers experienced a productive year at Neumeyer, but all agreed they would have preferred a mixed-gender workplace. Dorothy Braxton kept her campaign up when Rear Admiral James Reedy took over the United States Naval Support Force, Antarctica, having befriended his wife, Jean, and found they shared the ambition of heading south. Admiral Reedy was more sympathetic than his predecessor, Dufek, claiming to want women in Antarctica as they would make the place less dreary, which carries its own problematic baggage, but cited the facility's shortcomings in his first nulling pass, bringing up logistics as his second, though the same weights and measures never seemed to prevent the Navy accommodating government VIPs when someone's bright work needed polishing. Reedy acknowledged that women would eventually make it to Antarctica, but wasn't willing to put his career neck out to make it happen. It's easy to see Reedy as a political machinator when you contrast his platitudes about wanting women in Antarctica with him mouthing off about the quote, womanless white continent of peace. He at least claimed he sent a request to Washington asking that a contingent of women be allowed to visit McMurdo, but I don't know if that actually happened or if he just said it to not look too big an asshole in the eyes of his wife and her friends. New Zealanders are, to my taste, the funniest people on the planet. They're every bit as good at laughing at themselves as they are at taking the piss out of others, and there's few people can do that. To digress, Australians are terrible at laughing at themselves, as evidenced by the rabidly upset reaction my nation had to the episode of The Simpsons that sent us up. We like to claim we can laugh at ourselves, but we get our national backs up when someone doesn't respect us or our venomous snakes, which have always struck me as an odd thing to stake your patriotism on. Sterling Moss once commented that no one will admit to being a bad driver or a bad lover, but I'd add to that 
no one will admit to having no sense of humour, because laughter feels important enough that everyone wants to be able to inspire it in others. Even Donald Trump thinks he's masterfully funny, but the measure of how funny someone really is doesn't hinge on how good they are at making fun of others, it's how good they are at laughing at themselves. Dorothy Braxton's book isn't laugh out loud funny, but it's got a strong Kiwi appreciation of absurdity in its treatment of the people it recounts, and in its chronology of the author's own perspectives and experiences. Dorothy Braxton and Jean Reedy picked up on Harry Darlington's habit of calling Jenny Squaw when discussing her 1947 experiences, and started a tongue-in-cheek organisation using the start with the acronym and work backwards model, the Society for Questioning the Unavailability of Antarctica to Women. Rear Admiral Reedy was replaced by Rear Admiral F. E. Bakutis, who wasn't interested in helping women reach the ice, and nor was his replacement, Rear Admiral J. L. Abbott, Jr. But they should have been, because the Navy was increasingly struggling to find volunteers to fill the working schedule at its bases in Antarctica. Where, in 1955, 7,000 naval personnel put their hands up for 400 positions, and the following year, another 1,100 volunteered to act as the lucky 400's replacements. By 1957, the glamour had fallen away from the opportunity based on the tales taken north by the earlier cohorts, and only 110 hands went up for the following year's slots. That's where the data available to me ran out, but I can take a guess that the numbers didn't turn around, and doubling the pool of potential candidates would have kept those numbers up, for a while at least. The Squaw garnered a small but elite membership, including Lady Laura Ferguson, wife of the New Zealand Governor-General, and similarly interested in Antarctica. Squaw also received considerable local and international attention, and while it served its purpose in highlighting the inequality at play, Dorothy Braxton found something closer to real traction toward her goal through the New Zealand Antarctic Society. Through ENSAS, she spoke to the DSIR superintendent, G. W. Markham, whose response, taking a woman down to Scott Base, where we don't have facilities for them anyway, would just be like opening Pandora's box, and I'm not going to be the first one to turn the key. Demonstrating he was a coward, and either hadn't read Hesiod's Works and Days, or wasn't good at making literary analogies. A woman using the toilets at Scott Base would not unleash death and sickness on humanity and keep hope behind to magnify our suffering. There are situations that warrant comparison to Pandora's mythical vessel. Containers of nuclear waste, piles of bat guano in African caves, Ben Shapiro's subconscious. But no one's bowels, no matter how fettered, warrant comparison to that urn full of doom. Well, maybe that one guy I helped clean up after. But he died from the fetidity, and wouldn't have passed an ends-up medical anyway. Markham, never a name associated with giving people a fair go in Antarctic history, was succeeded at DSIR by Bob Thompson, who was more willing to be the agent of changes that his predecessor scorned, and tried to get Dorothy Braxton aboard a Royal New Zealand Air Force Hercules for a flying visit to Scott Base, based on her journalist credentials. I think Bob Thompson recognised which way the wind was blowing, and made a positive decision to be on the correct side of history. He saw the numbers of applications coming in from women for Antarctic roles, 
and predicted that Scott Base would see its first female residence in the mid-1960s, and he wasn't out by much. The Hercules opportunity fell through, and the single most encouraging thing anyone did for Dorothy Braxton since she started trying to get south turned into a spur towards fatalism. If the head of DSIR couldn't get her south, she'd just have to wait and see what came along next. What came along next was Lars Eric Lindblad. Lindblad was a traveller entrepreneur in the mould of Thomas Cook, though working the groove for money and experience rather than as a means to push a religiously inspired temperance movement, and he opened up a lot of areas previously inaccessible to tourists. The history of Antarctic tourism warrants its own episode and will receive one in due course, but suffice to say, Lindblad applied his mode to Antarctica and found paths, expensive ones, but paths nonetheless, to getting paying guests below the circle and onto the ice. His first voyages to the Antarctic Peninsula, though not the first tourist voyages there, but more of which anon, sailed aboard a chartered South American vessel in 1966, and this was followed by two trips to the Ross Sea aboard the Magadan in early 1968. Dorothy Braxton, as part of the New Zealand Antarctic Society, made sure the expedition leader and his guests were afforded all possible hospitality in Christchurch, and asked if there was any room aboard for a journalist. Lindblad, with the booking sheet full, couldn't accommodate her on the first voyage, but space came available and she travelled south on the second. Among the guest cohort, Marilyn Farrell, bent on visiting her husband, deputy commander of Operation Deep Freeze that season, and based at McMurdo Station. The United States Navy wouldn't allow her to head south on their vessels or aircraft, but there was no rule about her turning up off her own bat. With the support of her husband, children and editor, Dorothy Braxton spent a month on the ship, visiting the Auckland Islands, Campbell Island, Cape Hallett, McMurdo Station and Scott Base, and Macquarie Island as one of seven women taking part in the voyage. She recounts her daughter overhearing community censure of her going south from two older ladies on a bus, tutting and isn't it a shaming about that journalist abandoning her family for so long. It's another noticeable difference in community expectations and female enfranchisement, where even my sisters, teens in the 1990s, would have had the self-confidence and social cachet to tell anyone dissing our mother for such a decision to go boil their head, where Dorothy Braxton's daughter felt the 1960s convention to be polite to her elders too strongly to speak up in the moment. The Abominable Snowwomen is the first of the six books to take an actively defiant attitude to the absence of women in Antarctica. Dorothy Braxton didn't go south because that's where her husband was going. She went because she wanted to go, and the book stands out for that reason. I don't think the women aboard the Magadan visiting McMurdo Station and Scott Base for the first time precipitated any institutional changes that followed, with New Zealand and the USA allowing women to take part in voyages, then summer base programs, then remote field work, then winter base programs, but they were still the first on the ground, though their footprints didn't last long. Those that followed, entering a male workplace in small numbers for longer periods, experienced the usual staring, attempts at courting, and sustained harassment history teaches us to expect whenever women make the first incursions into a workspace previously dominated by men. And that that wasn't surprising doesn't make it not disappointing. 
There's something about the pursuit of science that seems so laudable and high-minded that you expect better, so disappointment results. Robin Burns, writing in Just Tell Them I Survived, notes the dearth of accounts of women in Antarctica in the 1970s and 1980s, lamenting the gap it left in her tracking of women's experiences. But I think the small numbers of women that went south in that period either had such bad times they didn't want to relive it in the process of writing about it, or wanted to go back and saw keeping quiet about the negative aspects of the experience as key to not receiving the sort of male censure that could so readily stymie a career and curtail opportunities at the time. I've come across a handful of interviews about personal experiences in Antarctica in that period that accord with that hypothesis. The Ice Beneath My Feet was published more recently than Icebound and Terra Incognita, but recounts events preceding those in the earlier publications, namely those leading up to and during the 1989 Austral Winter, during which Diana Patterson went south as station leader at Mawson. Australia already posted a woman doctor to one of its winter teams in 1975, when the dearth of male applicants and the availability of a qualified woman pretty much forced the issue without consulting anyone who might take umbrage, because circumstances don't care about your feelings. I think this formed the central theme for the sitcom Brass Monkeys, in which a female doctor entering an all-male workplace and living space in isolation is the catalyst for hijinks, or at least jinx. It was a product of its time, and the writing and laugh quotient reflects that, but the depiction of bunk arrangements and communal spaces at Australian Antarctic stations at the time is compellingly close to the mark, and if you told me that the theme song derived from a ditty written and sung at Australian stations at the time, I wouldn't be at all surprised. But I digress. But you knew that about me already. Coming from a background in business project management, Diana Patterson's experience in leadership and pragmatic approach to the challenges she took on made her an excellent fit for the role of officer in charge at a research station. But it took a decade of applications and rejections and questions such as, what would you do if you were facing a big male seal, which doesn't actually address the skills and experience pertinent to the job she was applying for, and instead, just sought to intimidate the candidate based on her being a woman. And it's not as though seals differentiate based on gender. Facing a bolshy seal of any species, you stand your ground, make yourself look as big as you can, make some noise, and if all that fails to deter a charge, piss bolt out of range. The seals don't pay attention to sex, and anyone dumb enough to stand their manly ground and take a manly swing at a charging seal because they're a manly man and piss bolt for no mail is going to get rolled and torn up by some seriously pointy, unbrushed teeth. And if they survive, they'll be shipped home with a lot of stitches, a likely case of septicemia, and a possible case of tuberculosis. Diana Patterson kept applying and, when allowed to take part, excelled in the hands-on activity and role-play-based selection program the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions put its leader candidates through. She got the official nod, that the government messed her about in giving her the assignment. While not the first nation to send women south, Australia was quick out of the blocks on that front, and with an eye for a PR boon in the 1988 hoo-ha about the bicentenary of European colonisation, the Bob Hawke-led government of the day wanted to be the first to send a woman south as officer in charge of one of its research stations. They did this, but in truncated form, sending Diana Patterson south as a trainee 
officer in charge at Casey Station for the summer season 1987-88. to This monkeying about with their schedule for the sake of a government patting itself on the back for breaking down a barrier that should never have existed in the first place pissed Diana Patterson off and the nature of the role at Casey left her with little to do other than observe the leader she was tasked with learning from, making it hard to demonstrate her worth by hard yards. She did a good job regardless, setting an expectation for success and goodwill on her return to Antarctica for the full year. She attests her success to learning to think like a man, but I don't know if that's accurate. Certainly she learned to think like an Antarctican, but there's nothing especially male about that. Solving problems, putting up with discomforts, mortgaging ease and largesse today to bring about a better tomorrow, are the things that set humans apart for success, regardless what you carry between your legs and which pronouns you use. During her time at Casey, Diana Patterson and the men around her realised it wasn't women who weren't wanted in Antarctica, but slackers. People who didn't carry their share of the load were scorned, regardless of their gender. There's always work to do around base, and if anyone doesn't regularly volunteer for tasks, or if someone's slow to arrive to their watch and fast to find excuses to bunk off, they quickly generate simmering resentment among their colleagues, and these are the people who generally have a bad season, sufficient to see them not apply to return. Enough such people can lead to a sour season for all involved, if the leadership doesn't find a path to productive and smooth equilibrium, and the experiences of two winter parties just a year apart can offer some stark contrasts of mood and mean. My tracking of Erzat's tobacco used in Antarctica received some new insights from her book, with macerated hessian and cloves joining tea leaves in the mixes concocted to see the smokers through an unexpected month-long delay to the resupply vessel, Icebird. In early December 1987, Casey's station was rocked by the news that the Nella Dan, a much-loved Danish charter vessel in a sturdy lineage of Danish charter vessels used to maintain Australian stations, went aground at Macquarie Island, adding a delay to personal rotations in and out of the mainland bases. So her first season at Casey provided a better grounding in the contingencies an officer in charge needs to handle than the apprentice nature of her position initially appeared to offer. Her time at Casey concluded, with almost everyone involved eager to see her succeed as overwinter OIC. On her return to Australia, she found a government inquiry examining the leadership at Anari and questioning pretty much every decision the director made during his time at the helm, including her appointment as overwinter OIC. She kept calm about it and jumped through the bureaucratic hoops. A happenstance wherein a 1988 OIC nominate had to pull the pin on his appointment, saw Diana proceeded as Australia's first female overwinter OIC, but the candidate who got the nod for Casey Station that season did so off her merits, no longer featuring all the same hurdles people tried to throw in front of the author during previous rounds of interviews and selections. So not getting the first didn't diminish the satisfaction she experienced when she received her appointment to Mawson, the last of the Australian stations still running dog teams. The only resentment of her gender she experienced during the long dark arose from a two-winter veteran whose experience of women on station gave him the fixed idea that women would inevitably pair up with a partner and that the rest of the party would experience resentment of the relationship, as though not having sex for a year while someone else had sex wasn't something that ever occurred to people at home, 
and went against some charter of fucking rights or something. Deal with it, Snowflake. Outside your own space, who's having sex isn't any of your business in Hobart, and it's none of your business on the ice. During her time at Mawson, Diana Patterson helped coordinate the evacuation of two Australians at Davis Station, who were badly injured in a snowmobile accident. Relaying requests to Mioni Station, she organised for a Russian Li-2 ski plane to collect the injured Australians from a skiway the Davis Station helicopters could reach. The Li-2 flew the injured and the Davis Station doctor to Molodesnia Station, but adverse weather precluded the proposed Illusion 76 flight north to South Africa. Instead, the Russians flew the Australians to the Chilean runway at Frey Station, on a site at King George Island, the Chileans share with the Russians at Bellingshausen Station. From there, they were flown to Argentina and placed on commercial flights to Sydney. Love that international cooperation when the May Day goes out. Later that season, three Russian personnel were killed when the same Li-2 used in the evacuation experienced a fire during refuelling. And when something like that happens in Antarctica, Everyone feels the isolation on a personal level and empathy at a communal one. And the Australians more so in that instance because of the sterling service the Russians provided in getting two colleagues to safety. Diana Patterson's winter wasn't the hardest anyone ever experienced, but it wasn't a cakewalk either. Though it turns out her first winter was a good one, in no small part due to her being a good officer in command. Besides the government sticking its oar into her schedule, the book focuses on her personal experience of base life, and the chapters covering the dog sledging forays she took part in occupy my attention as only truly joyous doggo adventures in Antarctica can do. I'm seriously jealous of anyone who worked with dogs on the ice, and the experience, already marked with a use-by date at that point in Antarctic history, wasn't lost on the author. Sarah Wheeler's experiences at McMurdo Station, the Italian base known as Zucchelli Station, in remote field camps in Victoria Land, at Scott Base, and at bases around the Antarctic Peninsula, arose at a point in Antarctic history where women at the bases she visited were almost as common as men, and the altered dynamic, involving less staring and harassment and more amusing encounters with researchers and wildlife, except at Rothera, where a lot of Bass staff resented her presence, Britain being the last to let women join their teams, shines through in the text. Artists and writers hold a privileged position in Antarctic programs and receive a lot of opportunities not available to even the most prestigious researchers, but the resulting book remains a favourite on my shelf because the author relished those opportunities and turned out words that did the landscapes, the cultures and the processes she encountered considerable literary justice that she littered the continent with bread and butter pudding everywhere she went, doesn't seem to have caused any long-term cultural resentment or environmental damage. Dr. Jerry Nielsen's book, Icebound, recounts her time as the sole medico at Amundsen Scott Base at the South Pole. The rigours of life at 90 degrees south through the austral winter come through loud and clear in her writing, but it's the initial self-diagnosis, a failed biopsy, due to out-of-date testing materials, and the subsequent airdrop of equipment and consumables to allow a second biopsy confirming a diagnosis of breast cancer that drives the book's narrative. Dr Nielsen's experiences led to a policy change that two doctors must winter 
so one can look after the other and the base personnel if the other gets sick. Some people argued that as it was breast cancer that caused the emergency and flights, and took the doctor out of circulation while she began her course of rudimentary chemotherapy, women should be excluded from such an important role at Pole. But it wasn't the doctor's gender that forced the drama. The base surgery hadn't been updated in decades and wasn't equipped with the minimum kit any general practice in the continental United States would house. The isolation of Antarctica forces the price of carrying equipment to and installing it in a research station orders of magnitude above the price of doing it in the home nation. So medical facilities at bases tend to lag well behind the technology available elsewhere. The United States Antarctic Research Programs sent a ski Hercules to evacuate Dr. Nielsen out from the pole in mid-October, around seven weeks ahead of the usual first flights from McMurdo, and she underwent more rigorous cancer treatment in the US. Dr. Nielsen survived the cancer that developed during her time at Pole, turned a dangerous and expensive emergency flight program into a humanitarian and technological triumph in the media coverage, and the media turned it into Brave Pilot Saves Damsel in Distress at Pole. In spite of a mastectomy and chemotherapy, the cancer recurred and metastasized, and Dr. Nielsen died in 2009. The titles of those six books denote the cultural and personal shifts in perspective taking place in the half-century they span. My Antarctic Honeymoon and Antarctic Housewife reference the author's place in the Antarctic setting by noting their relationship to a man. The temporal mid-marker, The Abominable Snow Women, makes a strident statement about the ground the author fought to mark out for herself. Terra Incognita, The Ice Beneath My Feet, and Icebound reference the geographic context but leave out the gender. The text of these six books follow the arc measured by the titles. Two are tales of women trying to fit into a foreign world as a subordinate to their husband, one is an account of a fight to be accepted independent of any relationship to a man, a theme that carries through Dorothy Braxton's career in journalism as much as it does in her long and arduous push to reach Antarctica. Three are accounts of experiences in Antarctica by a person who happened to have a vulva. Another book that warrants some attention here is Robin Burns' 2001 Just Tell Them I Survived, mentioned briefly earlier on. The book and a recent, by which I mean spanning the past three decades, tranche of peer-reviewed literature examine women's experiences in Antarctica and the associated research and research support organisations. It's not got a lot of surprises in it if you've been paying attention for the past half century, but it's a good resource for gaining manifold perspectives from women who went south in a variety of capacities during a period of significant cultural change. A lot of it's positive. A couple of people the author sought to interview didn't want to dwell on the bad times they had in the South, one respondent giving Robin Burns the title of the book, Just Tell Them I Survived, and nothing more. I know one person who resented the cast the book gave to their experiences, claiming the text put a negative spin on their time at the ice, but I don't know if that's the case. That someone denies they've experienced sexism doesn't mean they haven't experienced sexism. It might be that they chose not to resent that sexism or avoided racking up about it in order to avoid denting relationships, opportunities and perceptions, hinging on their deportment. 
the hurdles for women trying to engage with Antarctica were sexist when she went south, and remained so until as recently as four years ago, when I met a meteorologist who was denied a winter slot on an Australian base because her boss didn't want her in the south as the only woman on station that year, the most recent data point available to me in terms of a single nation's attitude to women in Antarctica. More books recounting women's experiences in Antarctica are arriving on bookshop shelves, or the digital equivalent of what used to be bookshop shelves, this century, and that's great, but some of the stories they tell aren't. In her account of time as a cook at Blue One, Antarctica on a Plate, a book I otherwise wrote off as equivalent to Chasing Bohemia, A Year of Living Recklessly in Rio de Janeiro, itself a longer, duller, prose version of the story told in the song Common People by Pulp, and set on ice. Alexa Thompson recounts her contact with the sole woman researcher at India's Maitri station, who had to remove herself from the common room of an evening so the men could watch porn together. In 2001. I've never understood watching porn in a group. My friends used to do it. Perhaps they still do and they just stopped inviting me. I never accepted an invitation to sit around with a bunch of horny blokes watching people on a screen fuck. At its best, porn's for masturbating too. At its worst, it involves human trafficking and sex slavery. Somewhere in between those two, it's a room full of guys with barely suppressed erections, jeering at people who aren't there while a sad, highly qualified scientist sits in her room because a bunch of inconsiderate colleagues are hogging the communal spaces and entertainment resources. And she was expected to feel bad about making the men feel bad about her isolation. That's some really entitled bullshit. The phrase, one herc away from being ugly, is still in use at McMurdo, where I'd hope anyone overheard giving voice to such demeaning and objectifying sentiment at home would get rightly torn a new orifice for giving it voice. It shouldn't be used anywhere, but the worst aspects of male entitlement seem to linger longer in Antarctica, with women regularly referred to as bitches, sluts, whores and dykes, all denigrating labels applied based on a woman's perceived sexual availability to the man applying them. The Me Too movement saw articles citing bullying, sexist behaviour and sexual harassment meted out to women researchers in remote field camps and recounting the lengths to which departments and universities and nations will go to cover that shit up, because Antarctica is pure and natural and draws only the high-minded and the not-at-all creepy and manipulative. I hope those stories keep coming for as long as the problematic behaviour continues, and that the light they cast shows up the creepers and assholes for what they are, and that they are shunned for good reason. No one's career path should be determined by the desire to not bump into so-and-so again because no one was willing to stand up to their shitty behaviour. Maybe if everyone did a little to curb that shit, no one would ever have to do a lot. The old boys club nature of Antarctic institutes and their satellite research stations and field camps is in recession, but that doesn't mean the influence of that nature is through. It's still in play enough that it affects some women's career choices regarding Antarctica. And, like any other social change away from bigotry, will likely continue to echo in isolation, such as that found in Antarctica, for some time after social mores and societal legislation in the home nations have squared the ledger. Women going south didn't make life cushy. Technology did that in the form of diesel-powered ships, electricity, aircraft, 
radios and satellites. Anyone who moans that Antarctic life isn't what it once was can sleep under horse blankets, navigate the inlets in a scow, and wear Burberry, and I'll laugh at them from my sleeping bag, my Zodiac, and my Mustang jacket, in that order. No one's stopping you from being miserable just because the modern equipment offers the opportunity to be comfortable. I don't see virtue in suffering for its own sake, and figure anyone who seeks it out is a dumbass or religious, though the extent to which those factors co-occur among the fans of suffering might make or the wrong choice of conjunction where and could prove more apt. Alcoholic excess has historically been and remains the single strongest catalyst for trouble at Antarctic stations and warrants its own episode as the stories and lessons are manifold. But women turning up only ever caused significant problems for the individual women and those problems arose because men caused them by being shitty people. None of the forecast Pandoric doom ensued and the people who tried to roadblock half the human race from the ice are remembered as assholes for it. Many of the people joining Antarctic programs in the 2020s may not realise how many barriers had to fall to give women those opportunities, and they'll face the cold and the storms and the broken generator with the same attitude as all of their predecessors regardless of which side of a demographic delineation that Antarctica doesn't care about, they fall. I need to cope with these conditions and get this job done because I'm far away from the conveniences and support available at home. It's not heroism that drives human endeavour in Antarctica, it's coping. And the men that got that wrong, and placed their bet on coping as a path to hero status, can't blame women for their manly facade coming out shortchanged by history. It was a dumb bet, and the resentment some men tried to play out on women for spoiling the illusion they wanted maintained made for some sorry antics. The British Antarctic Survey was one of the last government bodies to let women onto its bases, out to its remote field sites, and to fly on its aircraft without a chaperone. Elke Mackenzie spent two winters at British bases during Operation Tabarin, but as she transitioned in the 1970s, the people in charge didn't realise she got past their gender radar, which I'm sure they thought was foolproof, because everyone always did. No one ever asked before they applied the pronouns though I noticed the nicer people in my life are starting to ask people what their pronouns are and to add their own to their profiles. Small changes with big payoffs, though you'd think the world was ending with the reactions of J.K. Rowling and Graham Linehan. Who'd have thunk J.K. Rowling was really Dolores Umbridge and that Graham Linehan had more in common with Douglas Renham than Maurice Moss? And Scott Adams recently demonstrated that the pointy-haired boss was always the hero and secret genius of the Dilbert cartoons. It may turn out to be a good thing that Douglas Adams died before it came to light that he was really a Vogon. But I digress. I think the final straw that saw the Bass Donkey's back break on the question of whether or not to hold fast against the tides of change was that the space programs on both sides of the Cold War already had women orbiting the planet. If space wasn't an exclusively male domain based on the manly manness required to go there or because of lack of facilities, Bass couldn't seriously contend that Antarctica should remain one. The first British woman to go south with Bass explicit knowledge arrived on the ice in the Austral summer 1983-84, to and the first women wintered at a Bass station in 1990, a century after the Royal Geographical Society's decision to close its membership to women. Recall from episode 28 that after 22 women joined the RGS, shortly after membership was made available to them, 
the books were closed to women in 1893. The unpleasant events surrounding a rigged vote on the matter, and his predecessor's resignation over same, spurred Sir Clements Markham to concentrate his energy on Antarctic exploration, hoping it might distract from the scandal. Given Markham's tremendous influence over the heroic era, it's no small thing that British women played a pivotal role in winding up his clockwork and wore the worst restrictions on their access to Antarctica. There's still a long way to go before Antarctic stations catch up the grounds gained by feminism in the home nations, and still a long way to go before those home nations stop treating women as second-class citizens. But Rear Admiral George Defect's prediction was 100% accurate. Women did travel to Antarctica over his dead body. Suck it, George. You were correct. For the wrong reason. But you're dead. And that leads me to the bit where it's all about me. If you've listened to more than a couple of episodes, you'll already know I'm not shy when it comes to talking about myself. But this is an episode where I felt wary of doing that. But as the personal experiences I'm about to recount speak to the inequality women face even in an industry that pats itself on the back as much as Antarctic tourism does, I'm going to give myself license to talk about my lived experience as it relates to the theme of this episode. In my most recent season on the ships, I upbraided a male colleague for commenting that two of the women on our team don't smile much. I'm dour as fuck, but he never included me in the assessment of happy quotient, and I hope he got the message that telling women to smile for male pleasure is some sorry bullshit. I only meant it as a joke, doesn't make it not sexist, as my exclusion from his commentary on facial expressions, in spite of standing among the group with my face like a slapped ass, demonstrates. I also had to step in and remind guests on the ships that my female colleagues are often better informed than I am on the topics they're asking me about. The default setting being to ask the guy because he's the guy. One guest got physically intimidating with a female colleague when she wasn't able to provide him with the answers he wanted to hear regarding life jackets for his children, which were assigned according to the SOPs, but not to his liking. My colleague was willing to write it off as stress and cultural differences, but I wasn't. The guy wouldn't have dreamt of acting that way with me or any of my male colleagues, and that he frightened my colleague with his overbearing presence and mode wasn't good enough and warranted further discussion, which he received and which he accepted, because he wasn't given any option to protest. It's not that I ever threaten anyone with violence I can't actually bring to the table. It's that I can talk until people want to die. And when I have the righteous bit between my teeth, I don't let anyone get away with poor reasoning or unclear communication. We stay on topic until the position is crystal clear, and I openly record the discussion so no one can accuse me of anything untoward after the event. I don't think I convinced him he was wrong to treat her the way he did, but I think I did convince him that he shouldn't treat anyone that way again while on a ship he shared with me. And while that's not a big win, that's better than just letting the matter lie and saying, you have to pick your battles, which was a regular refrain from colleagues who either lacked the confidence or the energy to hold the guests to the company's stated values and the IATO SOPs. That someone as generous, smart and experienced as my colleague received such treatment isn't good enough. But the guests aren't briefed that expedition staff should receive the same treatment you'd offer any work colleague doesn't seem to have caught on in the tourism industry. And even then, that bloke likely treats his female work colleagues badly because he was an asshole to the bone. As I outlined after my recent return from the ships, 
I parted ways with Quark Expeditions because they demonstrated they placed the perception of their brand ahead of the well-being of their guides. That was enough on its own, but I was on the lookout for such brand protection before it impacted me. The gain on my arseholeometer is usually turned way up high, partly because of my atypical wiring and partly from long and bitter experience, but it received a valve preamp and a condenser microphone when I found out the company let one of their expedition leaders off the hook for an assault against one of my colleagues. That bullshit set me up to spot the attempt at brushing a problem under the rug for what it was in my circumstance. The expedition leader in question assaulted my colleague, at the time his partner, and while the company sacked him, they kept the matter quiet, buttressing their own silence with a call that we respect the EL's privacy. I thought he'd been shafted by a disgruntled guest with leverage, but I think the company was insulating itself against critique for placing someone at the helm who then turned out to be unreliable to the point of unwarranted violence. I didn't find out about this until a year after the events in question, and it was a further 10 months before I got a hold of confirmatory evidence. I sat on the information until the Polar Tourism Guides Association put that EL forward as an example of exemplary leadership in a panel discussion, at which point I posted about the incident and its repercussions. He was removed from the panel discussion, but the post was erased. So it looks like yet another corporate entity is more interested in its branding than it is in doing the right thing, which I see as alerting fellow guides to the problematic history of that particular expedition leader. I haven't dug particularly deep, but I know three people who balance their future employment in that industry against the likelihood of encountering that expedition leader. And I find it deeply unethical that those colleagues are paying the price for that expedition leader's lack of self-control. To be sure, anyone listening to this has the information necessary to make an informed decision about him as a colleague, a leader, or even as a friend. His name is Hadley Mearsham. Hadley gave me a lot of opportunities and trust that someone as new to the industry as I was might not have received from other leaders, and I enjoyed his company, but everything I thought I knew about him went out the window when I realised he was willing to be violent towards someone in his care. That the company didn't see fit to inform its contractors why their leader was removed left us in the dark about what happened and what was expected of us and what to think of our former leader, and it left guides at other companies he picked up at open to further abuse. I've received some attempted censure over my speaking out about this, in the vein of, it happened two years ago. Everyone gets along fine now, so shut up. No one's tried to hide anything. We just demand you stop talking about this. And who are you to judge? And other mealy-mouthed platitudes some people think let them off the hook for their silence. The answer to that final attempted rhetorical question is that I am someone who will never deliberately harm anyone without sufficient reason that I can explain to that person why I'm harming them. Self-defence, vaccination and quarantine are all good reasons to harm someone in order for others to derive a direct benefit from that harm. Lashing out at a colleague because I'm frustrated or tired or drunk is not, so I don't do that, ever. I won't claim I'm perfect, but I'll own my past and try hard to be better than I was rather than hide from it and pretend stuff never happened, because that makes a repeat performance extremely likely. It's not as though we're working in a pillow fluffing facility where the most dangerous thing we might encounter is a slightly less than really soft pillow. 
For months at a stretch we spend our days leaving our ships, sometimes into heating seas, to carry people to ice-strewn shores between icebergs and past drifting flows, and we dodge around the seals on the beaches while keeping an eye on the catabatic conditions developing on the mountaintops. We don't need additional worry that our colleagues and leaders might be violent, untrustworthy arsebags on top of that. But the precedent has been set, and that's where we're at. Because people at the top place the shininess of their logo ahead of the safety and support of the people at the pointy end of their product. And fuck everyone who kept us in the dark on the matter. I realise I'm burning bridges in being vocal about this. It's already cost me a lot of friendships, and seen me attacked by people who assured me they had my back and who valued my support when they were in their darkest hours. But I never set out to make flammable bridges. The people who talked about values and standard operating procedures and coherent teams but then demonstrated that it was all only talk are the people who did that. They piled the kindling high around the footings and poured liquid accelerants over the parapets, which is a fucking strange way to go about constructing a bridge. But I won't hold back on the matches just because the flames of burning bridges cast inconvenient light on problematic pasts. Quark expeditions covered up an assault. People have complained that we haven't heard their side of things, and that's true, but that's their choice. They chose silence. Yes, I'm upset, but that doesn't invalidate the reasoning. The logic that mandates fair and ethical treatment isn't hard to get to grips with. Now, here's an abridged outline of the Women Achieving Firsts, drawn from Elizabeth Chipman's exhaustive appendix to Women on the Ice. Austral Summer, 1930-31. Ingrid Christensen and Matilda Vega travelling aboard the Torshaven. Austral Summer, 1932-33. Ingrid Christensen again travelling in company with Lillemore Rachlu aboard the Torshaven. Austral Summer 1933-34, Ingrid Christensen in company with Ingeberg Bruder Dedekin on the Torshaven, circumnavigating the continent. Austral Summer 1934-35, Carolyn Mickelson putting ashore on what might be Trine Island or might be the Vestfold Hills from the Torshaven. Austral Summer 1936-37, Ingrid Christensen, Sophie Christensen and Lillemore Ashlew sailing aboard the Torshaven once more. Gladys Hooley, in South Georgia with her radio operator husband, Tim, and 14-year-old daughter, Dawn, sailed south aboard the RMS Fitzroy during the positioning of Operation Tabern, returning to South Georgia for the 1944 winter. Jenny Darlington and Edith, Jackie, Ronnie, spending the 1947 winter at Stonington Island as part of the Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition. Austral Summer, 1947-48. Elena Serda de Bulnes and Rosa Markham de Gonzalez Videa, travelling with the Chilean Presidential Party to the South Shetland Islands and Antarctic Peninsula. Austral Summer, 1955-56. Marie Klenova sailed south aboard the OB as marine geologist, and the following Austral Summer, 1956-57, the same research vessel, OB, hosted hydrobiologist V.S. Korotkevich and geomorphologist L.M. Nikolaeva. Austral Summer, 1957-58, flight stewards Patricia Heppenstall and Ruth Kelly visited McMurdo Station 
as part of a tourist visit aboard a DC-8. Austral Summer, 1959-1960, marine biologist Isabel Bennett, botanist Mary Gillam, biological secretary Susan Ingham, and intertidal ecologist J. Hope McPherson at Macquarie Island. Austral Summer, 1960-1961. Nell Law sailed south with Philip Law, leader of the Inari expedition to Macquarie Island and Mawson Station, Austral Summer, 1962-1963. Biologists E. Figetti and D. Frelin, Mary Alice McWinney, and research assistant Phyllis L. Marciniak sailed aboard the research vessel USNS Eltanin, operating in the Scotia Sea, while Christiane Gillette worked as engineer at De Montdeville Station. Zoologist Nelly Lafuente went to Bernardo O'Higgins Station in the Chilean program. Austral Summer, 1968-69. Marine biologist Irene Bernasconi worked in the South Orkney Islands on the Argentine program, along with Maria Adela Carrilla, a microbiologist, and botanist Carmen Pujals, while the Chilean program took journalist Carmen Marino de Ginesto to the South Shetlands and Antarctic Peninsula. Austral Summer, 1969-1970. Geochemist Lois Jones... Entomologist Kay Lindsay, geologist Elaine McSfavini, psychologist Christine Muller-Schwartz, chemistry student Terry Lee Tickhill, and field assistant Pam Young, worked at McMurdo Station and visited the South Pole. Austral Summer 1970-71. Geologist Rosemary Askin and biologist Anne Chapman went south with the New Zealand Antarctic Research Programs working in Victoria Land. Austral Summer, 1971-72. Jackie Ronnie returned to Antarctica with her husband Finn, visiting Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Austral Summer, 1973-74. United States Navy Lieutenant Anne E. Coyer at McMurdo Station. Microbiologist E. Nan Scott and research assistant Donna Muchmore worked at Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Winter, 1974. Biologists Marie Odile Cahoon and Mary Alice McWinney at McMurdo Station. Winter, 1976. Z.N.C. Gardner, medical doctor, Macquarie Island. Winter, 1979. Michelle Elaine Rainey, medical doctor at Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Winter, 1982. Julie Campbell, medical doctor at Mawson Station. Austral Summer, 1983-84. United States Navy Lieutenant Paula Hubbard, operating flights between McMurdo Station and Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. While marine biologist Aditi Pandit and geologist Sudipta Sengupta sailed aboard the Finn Polaris as part of the Indian Antarctic Program, operating off Droning Maudland. Denise Allen, Interviewed in episode 70, was the first woman awarded the Australian Antarctic Medal in 1989. And Virginia Fines was the first woman to receive the Polar Medal in 1986, and the first woman to winter in both polar regions. So, dear listener, come to the end of a fairly bumly episode, 
during a fairly bumly year. You coping okay? Doing alright? Can get you anything? It's been hard writing such a depressing episode and it coinciding with depressing events in polar tourism which in themselves are cast in depressing events surrounding coronavirus which in themselves are pretty small beans compared to the climate change we're facing. And fuck. I think it's understandable that I'm not at my most chipper. If you've gotten in touch in the past to let me know you're enjoying the series or even if you're just downloading it that's a lot to me that means something i'm really grateful i'm not trying to put it on you to get in touch and tell me that you value the series or that you know that i've got stuff to live for i know these things these the logic doesn't falter what depression does is removes your ability to care about those i cleaned up after so many suicides and you'd see them falling into two very distinct categories. There are people that have lost their fight against the pain. They've fought long and hard and they've won that battle every time, but you can only lose it once. Whether it was mental illness or pain caused by others, they ended their pain through their death. And while cleaning up those messes sometimes was a cause for sadness, I never felt angry about them. The ones that made me angry were people ended their lives to escape consequences and repercussions of their decisions. I think the world would be a better place if more people and corporations behaved as though they were at sea. A captain is responsible for their ship to the extent that if a ship goes aground, the captain's to blame. They get the prestige and the good pay to accept that responsibility. But even if they were asleep when the grounding happened, the grounding is their fault because they were responsible for the running of their ship, for the delegation of tasks, for making sure that people were up to their jobs. It's part of what I love about working at sea is that very clear chain of responsibility that the people involved take very seriously. Mostly. And I think corporations would operate with a greater degree of safety efficiency and productivity if people thought about those frameworks and activities the way a ship's crew does. Somehow we've developed a culture where corporations and individuals can take all the credit for all the things that their staff and colleagues do, but none of the blame. That would never work in a maritime situation and I don't understand why we let it happen in businesses and corporations and communities. We should cast the same size net when looking for blame as we do when we're looking for a claim. And to do that, we've got to kick uphill when shit goes wrong. Saying hello to Callie this episode. They produce the podcast Queersplaining. And it's well worth your time if you need some respite from bigots or if you want to learn how not to bigot as much as J.K. Rowling and Graham Linehan have been doing of late but you don't want to bug a trans colleague or an NB friend with questions they've likely already been asked thousands of times. Kelly is to awesomes and has a cool doggo. There's not much left in the tank, so take care and appreciate your coffee. Closing out this episode, Aunt Jay Duvicott's song, Caffeinated Warriors, from her album, 
toward the thunder. Aunt Jay got in touch early during the production of the series to let me know that she was enjoying what she heard and about her ambitions to join the Writers and Artists program. We never got to meet, but her correspondence and her music meant a lot to me, and I hope she carries on trying to get to Antarctica. stories of a million strangers their ghosts dwell in the fixtures and the walls and they disappear like the mist as it rises off the highway where nights are too quiet and too loud and they tug at your dreams in the middle of the day they say the devil you know Better than the devil that you don't know That the stage lights and the miles will never show That the riches I bring you are nothing but trinkets Mere currency between strangers And if you ever loved me, you would let me go So goodbye, Antoine Saint-Exupéry Intrepid wanderers goodbye, Amelia and Hemingway. Broken-hearted explorers goodbye, Joan of Arc and all you caffeinated warriors. Goodbye, goodbye to you. I charted my course through fields of unfinished cathedrals to the pulsing, heady calling. Watched it pour like a flood on the surface of Lake Erie. Been talking to my GPS, I've been talking to God. I suspect it may be written in my blood. But these castles of sand will not stand beyond the winter. And the crow flies and the trail of We wore our hearts too freely On the nights when we were touted On the marquees of that fleeting drop of time So goodbye, Antoine Saint-Exupéry And all you intrepid wanderers Goodbye, Amelia and Hemingway You broken-hearted explorers Goodbye, Joan of Arc you caffeinated warriors Goodbye, goodbye to Exuberant, and 
And all you intrepid wanderers Goodbye, Amelia and Hemingway You broken-hearted explorers Goodbye, Joan you caffeinated warriors Goodbye, goodbye to you Say goodbye, Antoine Saint-Exupéry And all you intrepid travelers Goodbye, Virginia and Woody Guthrie Are you weary unraveled? Goodbye, damned you damned and Thank you.